SEC fans, welcome to the Saturday Down South podcast. Come to you from the iHeartMedia studio, WDAE in Tampa, Florida, 620 AM and 95.3 FM. My name is John Christ, senior writer for Saturday Down South, and his name is Connor O'Gara, national columnist for Saturday Down South. You can follow me on Twitter at SaturdayJC, and you can follow him at CJ O'Gara. Connor, it was another monster weekend of college football, not necessarily in the conference we covered day to day, but the odds of both Alabama and Georgia making the college football playoff, they keep getting better with each passing week. Absolutely. And we're looking at a situation in which this is becoming just more and more realistic, something that maybe in the beginning of the, the 2017 season we didn't think is possible. But now, I mean, geez, you have to like these chances. They're, they're, as you said, they're getting more favorable by the week. Favorable, if not inevitable. And if you're listening to the Saturday Down South podcast, then you know that our fans love football. And you know what the South loves even more? Crystal Burgers. That's right. Crystal, home with a classic Crystal Burger. They're a Saturday Down South sponsor this year, and they are ready to hook you up for your tailgate. First, the classic Crystal, the one you grew up with, the one you loved in college way after midnight. It is still only 79 cents all day, every day, as many as you want, 79 cents a pop. But on top of that, Crystal is taking care of our readers and podcast listeners this fall. Text SDS. The letters SDS to 37793 right now. 37793, and you're going to get two free crystals and a drink. So you've got free crystals, you've got 79 cent crystals. I guarantee if you show up to your tailgate with a steamer pack full of crystals, you're going to be treated like the hero that you are. So stop by your local crystal today. Connor, there are only Four ranked teams in the SEC right now, but they all play each other in what should be a sensational Week 11. It's going to be a very telling week, I think, in the SEC. The kind of weekend that we've been sort of waiting for. I mean, Alabama LSU was great, and we've had some, some decent early season matchups with you know Georgia and Mississippi State, but you know, and, and Auburn LSU. But this is really going to be the weekend that we've been waiting for. We talked about how Alabama and Georgia have sort of separated themselves from the pack. Let's see how far ahead they are from the pack this very weekend. Yeah, the last couple of Saturdays, you know, we kind of haven't had a whole lot of matchups between ranked opponents. There have been some upsets and some interesting games, but we haven't had those Titanic matchups, and we're going to get those in Week 11. But before we get there, let's look back a little bit at Week 10 just from a couple of days ago and the game I have to talk about is Florida and Missouri. I thought this was a very telling performance, not only from the Gators, but also from the Tigers. I never anticipated Florida showing up so dead for that game. And quite frankly, I never anticipated Mizzou playing as well as it did. I thought this was very indicative, potentially, about the directions of these two programs right now. Maybe Florida is in a lot worse shape than we anticipated. It's not just a head coaching problem. And maybe Missouri is in a little bit better shape than we anticipated. It seems like Barry Odom finally got a nice win that he can bring back to his boys in the locker room and say, hey, look, we got something going here in the right direction. Yeah, just to to start with Missouri, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think Missouri in the last month has actually done some really good things. And I'm not talking about non-conference teams against 
UConn or whoever. I'm talking about actual SEC games against real defenses. Missouri has actually looked pretty good, all things considered. I thought they did some incredible things in that first half against Georgia, and you knew that their defense wasn't going to be able to keep them around against a team as good as Georgia. But at the same time, you know, go back to their last four SEC games. They're averaging 30 points. Those are four games that include, uh, I mean, they include opponents like Auburn, Kentucky, Georgia, Florida. I mean, these aren't SEC slouches, so to speak. And the Missouri offense that we thought we'd see in 2017 really came out again against Florida. And this is a team right now that, yeah, I know you're looking at your first conference win, but who's to say Missouri can't run the table in the SEC? I mean, they got Tennessee, and then they got road games against Vanderbilt and Arkansas. Goodness, none of those scare you. I mean, this is a, a Missouri offense that has to be as scary as any right now to face, and Florida just happened to face it at the absolute worst possible time. Yeah, it's amazing to think that the Tigers, considering where they were at the beginning of this season, with that five-game losing strike, they could run the table here, as you suggest. It's very light on the schedule the rest of the way. This could be a 7-5 and five team that goes to a respectable bowl game. There's no way we would have said that two, three, or four weeks ago. And this is a program that, okay, I mean, I've been as critical as any. You play Southwest Missouri State, you hang 72. Who cares? You play Idaho, you hang 68. Who cares? You play UConn, you hang 52. Who cares? And tell Drew Locke can do it against a legit opponent in the legit conference. Who cares? Well, he did that on Saturday. Granted, Florida is beat up. Change in coach. Not interested when they got to Faroe Field. Lots of injuries, lots of suspensions. That being said, look at Drew Locke. 15 out of 20, 228 yards, three touchdowns. He was picked off once, but hey, it was Duke Dawson, who's an all-SEC player. That's a nice, nice performance. And what we've seen the last couple of years from Locke is that he beats up on all these cupcakes, and then he plays a legit defense. And he's throwing two or three picks. He's singing the ball all over the place. He can't even complete 40% of his passes. This was a different Drew Locke. This was a different Tigers team. I think there is a little bit of momentum in Columbia right now. And as you suggest, the schedule is soft the rest of the way. I like what I saw from Mizzou. And it's the first time I've said that maybe in two years. Absolutely. Last week we were talking about whether or not Barry Odom was going to be back for another season. And now we're talking about if this team can win seven games. Thus his life in the SEC. But, you know, Drew Locke, I, I think, has really kind of stepped up his game and looked much better than he did at the beginning of the season. And we're talking about a Florida team that looked disinterested on Saturday. Missouri looked disinterested in the beginning of the season. That Purdue game was a complete and total disaster. And to see that this, this offense has really built itself into, you know, one of the more formidable units in the SEC, I think, right now, I, I don't think that's you know, that's overstating it. And I think Drew Locke is going to be able to do some things against defenses that really haven't seen a lot of great passers this year. And I, I do think that this, this is a Missouri team that could easily end up with seven wins. And all of a sudden, the Barry Odom uh, sort of direction that he's been preaching all year is coming to light. Now, as far as Florida, I mean, obviously Florida is in uh, very, very bad shape right now on the injury front, on the just the overall effort perspective. I, I, I'm not big. I'm calling out a team's effort for performance, but my goodness, that was that was atrocious on Saturday. I mean, you had a, a chance to, to maybe get some new some guys in there that maybe hadn't been given the, an opportunity necessarily under Jim McElwain. You know, of course, Malik Zaire being the prime example of that. 
And this was just an awful showing on all fronts. And this is a Florida team right now where you're looking at the schedule and you're thinking, wow, how did they get to three wins? <laughs> they could have easily been a one-win team right now. And where would, where would we be at if we are talking about that? But um, Florida is just going to crawl to a finish here, even with favorable matchups coming up. I just don't see how this team is going to do anything other than just, you know, what we saw on Saturday. That seems inevitable at this point. Yeah, Florida now 3-5. and five. Getting to bowl eligibility even seems like a long shot at this point. This is a 3-5 and five team, as you suggest, probably could be 1-7 and seven right now. You had the Hail Mary quote-unquote from Felipe Franks to Tyree Cleveland to win that Tennessee game. If that game goes to overtime, I maintain the Vols win it because they had all the momentum and Florida had blown that game down the stretch. And then you had the Kentucky situation a week later. Kentucky just can't find a way to win big games and forgets to cover wide receivers for easy touchdown passes. Florida probably should have lost that game as well. And we knew the offense was bad, but look at the last four games. It's just really, really atrocious. LSU at home, you score 16 points. Texas A&M at home, decent defense, not a great one. You score 17 points at home. Georgia, neutral site, granted, fantastic defense, but seven points and you were lucky to get them. They came in garbage time. And then you travel to Missouri, maybe the worst defense in all of the Power Five. If it's not the worst, it's definitely in the top, in the bottom quartile is what I'm trying to say. And you score 16 points. And as you say, completely disinterested. And you know, you see this a lot of times when you do have a midseason coaching change. We saw it from LSU a season ago. You get less miles in there. You get Ed Ordron in there. You flip around the depth chart a little bit. You change the practice habits. And all of a sudden, you get a little bit of life into a program that wasn't there a week or two previously. We saw no evidence of that whatsoever with Florida. I think it's safe to say we can scratch Randy Shannon's name off the list the potential Gators coaches going forward. Certainly he's not going to be elevated from interim to full-time coach. He didn't even seem that interested. When you listen to him on the Wednesday press conference and the post-game presser, this didn't seem like a guy who was really fired up and pining for this job. So he wasn't ready to go. The game plan was horrific. The performance was awful. And yeah, this is a Gators program in major, major turmoil right now. It is not unforeseen that they could lose out. They're at South Carolina on Saturday. This is a frisky Gamecocks team that played pretty well against Georgia this past Saturday. Then you have UAB at home. Oh, by the way, UAB is going to a bowl game this year. First time getting football back on that campus in a couple of seasons. What's going on in Birmingham right now, if you're not paying attention? One of the better stories in all of college football. And then you had the Sunshine State showdown with Florida State. Granted, The Seminoles are having an equally disastrous season, but at least they found a way to beat Syracuse this past Saturday. The Knowles have also owned that matchup recently, one at Ben Hill Griffin Stadium each of the last two times they've been there. This is a Gators team that might be three and eight. Oh my God, three and eight in Gainesville. It's interesting because last week, I know that you wrote about this and it was a discussion that really, I don't think a lot of people were having about Randy Shannon and whether or not he could potentially win out and win this job, a la Ed Orgeron last year. And if this could be a scenario like with LSU missing on Tom Herman, maybe Florida misses on Scott Frost and then decides to go the interim route after seeing it play a different brand of football down the stretch. And you wrote about this. You're like, you know, why this doesn't seem to be something that's being discussed nationally. Randy Shannon's a guy who has head coaching experience. He has recruiting ties in the state of Florida. 
and all of that went away in one afternoon in Columbia. And this is a, a situation in which you're right. You look at that final stretch and you're thinking to yourself, man, I, 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 I'm, I'm very, very doubtful that Florida gets two wins out of that stretch. And if they get, I don't even think there's a guarantee that they get one win. I mean, that's, that is where we're at talking about this team. This, this is a, an offense that is just in such shambles right now. I mean, goodness gracious, you have a quarterback coming out and saying, I think I'm the better quarterback after he gets benched. Oh, by the way, Felipe Franks only had four touchdown passes coming into this game um, on Saturday. And, oh, by the way, he was coming off a game in which he was 7 of 19 for 30 yards in this step. Mike, come on. I mean, this is, this is what we're talking about with Florida. This is complete and total collapse. And that, that reflects leadership, in my opinion, the fact that it's gotten to this point. If all it took was a coaching change for Florida to get to this kind of low, then Florida wasn't nearly at the level that we thought that they were at maybe coming into the season. For I mean, this this was a top 25 team coming into the season. I know we talk about whether or not those division titles were sort of hollow or earned, so to speak, but this is a, a program that was a lot closer to mediocre than maybe we realized, and now we're just sort of seeing the bottom fall out. By the way, 17 points in the opener of that neutral site loss to Michigan in week one. Both of those touchdowns were pick sixes. We've already forgotten about that. So this it's not like there's even been any ebbs and flows on this offense. It's just been flat out bad week after week after week. This is the Florida Gators we're talking about. They've played eight football games and have thrown six touchdown passes as a team. Six. Malik Zaire has five. I'm sorry, Malik Zaire has zero. He hasn't thrown one yet. Felipe Franks has five. Luke Del Rio threw one when he was in there. Six touchdown passes in eight games for a program that produced Steve Spurrier, for a program that produced Danny Warfel, for a program that produced Tim Tebow, and a half a dozen other really, really good quarterbacks, both collegially and in the NFL, whether it's a Shane Matthews or a Rex Grossman. The list goes on and on. Six touchdown passes in eight games. That is positively inconceivable. And how much of this is Jim McElwain's fault? It's hard to gauge. It really is. Who's to say that if Felipe Franks hadn't gone to another school in the SEC, who's to say that if Felipe Franks hadn't gone to Mississippi State instead of Florida, that he wouldn't be a pretty good player right now? Is this entirely on him not being as good as the four-star credentials he had coming out of high school? Or is he operating a playbook that doesn't make any sense? Is he not getting the quarterback coaching that he needs to get the most out of his raw ability? He's a big guy. He's got some decent wheels and mobility. He can throw it 80 yards in the air. There's clearly some intangibles. There's clearly some tools. Tangibles is what I'm trying to say. But there's no development at all. This is not 20 years ago where you can't play quarterback and be decent until your third or fourth year in the program as a redshirt junior. We've seen way too many freshman quarterbacks and way too many programs be really good right away because of how good these high school quarterbacks are now, how much football they're playing, the advent of seven-on-seven and taking over the spring and summer months. He should be better right now. And it's hard to imagine that Florida just keeps swinging and missing time after time after time in the post-Tebow era. You're telling me that all these quarterbacks they've had, Del Rio and Appleby and Brantley, I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. You're telling me at least not one of those guys 
couldn't turn into a pretty good player with some better coaching, I find that hard to believe. So maybe more of this is on Jim McElwain. It's not just a Florida problem, but they got to get the right guy in there because simply making the change and inserting the interim guy, it got, if anything, it got worse and not better. And I, I hate to I hate to say that you need to be an offensive guy or a defensive guy to get a job, but it just se- sort of seems like Florida is trending in that direction where it seems it seems far fetched right now that Florida is going to go after this strictly defensive minded coach. And maybe you know that's part of the where the Randy Shannon stuff came in, and maybe why that was never really seriously discussed because the assumption was that Florida was going to bring in an offensive guy. Now, of course, it didn't necessarily work with Jim McElwain. I mean, Jim McElwain was supposed to be this guru, this guy who was going to do things to the Florida offense that hadn't been done since the Urban Meyer era, and obviously we didn't see that. So now, what direction do the Gators go from that perspective? Do they try and do they try and correct their mistake and try and bring in a guy who is a surefire offensive guru, somebody who is going to be able to put points on the board, who's going to be able to win a blowout game, or are they going to say – we're just going to find the best guy and we don't care what their background is. We just need to win ball games. Cause right now it's not necessarily, it's not the style that Florida's winning in that has fans upset. It's the fact that they're getting destroyed in this fashion and they're just getting completely humiliated. So obviously you need somebody that's going to be able to uh, just change the narrative around this program right now, because you know, you have other, you have, and the thing about Florida that not a lot of people have talked about during this process is, you have other lesser programs in the state that are all of a sudden they are elevating their status and they are becoming more intriguing with big name coaches and guys who are well known. Just look at this. Just look at the state of Texas and how how easily it was for a program like Texas. How could Texas possibly fall behind and 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 all of a sudden be you know the, one of the lesser programs in the state? Well, when you have that much competition and you know, for, for recruits, it doesn't matter that you have this great recruiting ground. If you don't have the right coach in there, it's very easily it's very easy to get swallowed up, not only playing in, in the SEC, but just playing in that state alone. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing from Florida right now. So whoever comes in and is asked to, to rebuild this program, yeah, obviously you've got to rebuild the offense and change things around, but you just got to be able to change the overall perception of this program right now and make sure that it's just a one-year slip and that this isn't a complete and total rebuild, but I mean, after seeing what was what the product on the field Saturday, this is looking like a complete and total rebuild, and not just a quick, you know, flip of the switch type deal. One last note on Missouri before we move on: if best case scenario for the Tigers, they do win out, get to seven and five, and have a decent showing in a solid bowl game, are you buying what's happening in Columbia right now? Are you buying the long-term prognosis for Barry Odom or? Are the Tigers just getting the real benefit of the doubt with a weak schedule down the stretch? And this Florida team they just thumped is the worst Florida team maybe we've seen in a decade. Oh, if they win three in a row, I yeah, I'll, I'll absolutely buy it because you know that would be that would be really impressive. I think to to get to that point, uh, considering that we thought that this was a a Missouri team that was in that conversation with you know the the Vanderbilts and the and the Arkansas and the Tennessees and, and these programs that were just on the bottom feeder. And if Missouri can show that it's risen above that level, um, contrary to what we saw in the beginning of the season, I, yeah, I mean, how can you not buy the, the Barry Odom direction? Does the defense have to improve? Of course. Is this offense a little too reliant, or is this whole team maybe a little bit too reliant on Drew Locke to make some big plays downfield? Yes, 
but you know, at the same time, if you're beating up on these lesser SEC teams, to me, that shows that you have taken your your program to a level that um, fans didn't think it was at the beginning of the season. And I would, you know, I would definitely think that there would be some good momentum going into year three. Yeah, I commend Mizzou for that performance this past Saturday. I just wonder how sustainable their brand of football is. I love it when the offense is cracking, but the way they play, even Coach Odom being a defensive guy, I don't know if it's possible to even field a middle-of-the-road defense in the SEC because you're on the field too much and there's way too much pressure on you to keep the other team off the scoreboard. But before we move on to the next uh, next block here, the Saturday Down South podcast is brought to you by Ticket City. College football is here. We are knee-deep in it, and there are some awesome matchups this week in the SEC highlighted by Alabama at Mississippi State in Stark Vegas and then Georgia at Auburn on the Plains. We've been working with Ticket City for a long time. They are the experts in this business, having served over a million and a half customers. They've been the place to go for over three decades now. And best of all, Ticket City is offering $20 off for all Saturday Down South readers and podcast listeners. All you have to do is go to TicketCity.com, enter the discount code SDS20 at checkout, and you're going to get $20 off the game of your choice. Again, TicketCity.com, discount code SDS20. Get off the couch, go to the game, visit Ticket City today. Connor, let's talk about some of those big-time matchups. And before we get to Georgia-Auburn, which might be the best game out there, let's talk about Alabama-Mississippi State. A sneaky matchup could be very, very good, or it could be over in a hurry based on what Alabama has done this season. Before we get there, what did you see from the Alabama-LSU game this past Saturday? It was a two-touchdown victory for the Crimson Tide. Were you comfortable with the result of that game, or did you maybe see some chinks in the armor from Nick Saban and company? I think you saw some some chinks in the armor with the way that the offense didn't really take off. I think a lot of people were expecting Alabama to sort of – feed on the, the non-rat poison that they were given by the college football playoff rankings to be able to say, we are not the number two team in the country. Watch us go hank 50 on LSU. And that didn't happen. This was a, an Alabama offense that was kept in check by an LSU defense that's played really well as of late. And I thought that there were some weaknesses maybe in the intermediate, intermediate passing game and in the running game especially. I mean, you really haven't seen Alabama go against this stout run defense yet. And they struggled against LSU. This was not a game in which Alabama looked like Alabama. I mean, Jalen Hurts was the leading rusher on this team with 44 rushing yards. I mean, that's, that's atypical to see a total that low and for, for the tie to struggle on the ground like that. And, you know, on defense, the, the injuries are starting to mount for this team. You know, you have injuries to Sean Deion Hamilton and Mac Wilson go down, and you're all of a sudden looking at a, a situation where – Alabama's depth is going to need to be on point. I mean, we're going to need to see more of Dylan Moses, I think, in the coming weeks. And, you know, Alabama's got all these number one recruiting classes. And, of course, nobody coaches and plays up depth better than Nick Saban. But Alabama's at least going to be tested, I think. And I think they were they were tested a bit more than they thought they were going to be on Saturday night. There was apparently Alabama players that were texting LSU players saying, you know, you guys earned our respect, blah, blah, blah. But to me, that's, if you're Alabama, that's not what this is about. This is about the long-term picture and about the fact that you weren't able to 
um, impose your will against the team, maybe for the first time all year. I know you could probably go back to that Texas A&M game and make the same argument, but I don't think this was an Alabama team that looked like it was playing its best football in the first week of November, and obviously that has Nick Saban's attention. No, I'm actually going to disagree with you a little bit. I know that Alabama won this game 24-10. to It certainly doesn't seem like a blowout, but watching that game from start to finish, at no point was I under the impression that Alabama was in real trouble. I think LSU played incredibly well, especially on the defensive side of the ball. This is a defense that has gotten appreciably better since week one. Arden Key is starting to look like Arden Key again at times. I love Devin White at linebacker, the most sure tackler in the SEC. This is a secondary that is again loaded with veterans and youngsters alike that can make plays. But I still don't think LSU stacks up with Alabama, and I don't think it's that close. Now, when you look historically at this rivalry the last six or seven years or so, keep in mind that Alabama has won every one of them since the rematch in the, in the BCS championship game, the 2011 campaign. But this tends to be how they tend to go. You know, 20 or 25 points scored somewhere in that range. Even that shutout victory in 2011, I believe, was 21-0 the final score. So this isn't the type of game where Alabama scores 35 or 45 points because LSU has some dogs over there on defense, and this is their Super Bowl. This is the game they get most up for, whether it's over at Bryant-Denny Stadium or at Death Valley. So I thought Alabama played pretty well. Was it the best offensive performance you hoped for? Of course not. We know that the receiving core is really lean beyond Calvin Ridley. You talked about Jalen Hurts. He, he's sort of indefensible with the way he can beat you both ways, but he was contained, only 44 yards on the ground. Damian Harris struggled for the first time probably all season. Bo Scarborough really hasn't got it going yet despite being relatively healthy, but I'm not going to bury Alabama for this performance. I think that LSU deserves a lot of praise. I know they don't want to hear any sort of this moral victory type stuff in Baton Rouge, but that's probably the best you could hope for right now. So I still think Alabama is doing just fine. I expect no residual effect. The defense, however, yes, there are some injuries. You didn't even mention Minka Fitzpatrick, by the way. We'll right, find man. out. Yeah, we'll find out what the situation is with that hammy. Maybe it was just a little tweak, and he'll be fine. But if he's not out there, he's the most dangerous guy they have. He's the most important guy they have with his ability to play safety and corner and nickel and even a baby linebacker in that dime package. You cannot replace that guy. Sean Deion Hamilton, you can probably replace. Mac Wilson, you can probably replace. Make if it's Patrick, you can't. So you have to worry about that and if he's 100% going into Starkville with everything Nick Fitzgerald can do. But I'm just going to mildly disagree with you there. I think LSU played great on the defensive side of the ball. Alabama wasn't great offensively, but still controlled the game for the most part for four quarters. You're right. LSU deserves credit. And I didn't mean to, to, to fight the Tigers because I thought that was a very solid effort, all things considered, going into Tuscaloosa and hanging around like that. But at the same time, LSU, I thought, was a quarterback away from actually taking this game down to the wire. I mean, if Danny Edling connects on some of those deep throws, and I know you can go back in any game and say shoulda, woulda, coulda, but, man, they, they, they were right there. Yeah, this game more than most, there were a couple of real, real bad misses that could have been monster plays. Absolutely. And if you get a quarterback that can, who can actually make those throws, to me this is a situation in which Alabama could have been pushed. Alabama easily, you know, we've seen in, in, in years past with Alabama that, you know, if you if you can go over the top and you can play with, you know, a little bit of pace and do some different things on offense, you know, there there's 
what's to say that you can't hang around and go four quarters with Alabama? And LSU, I guess, you know, I don't really think went four quarters, so to speak. I mean, I thought the game was pretty much over in the middle of the fourth quarter because they weren't going to score two touchdowns late. But what, what, what's to say LSU can't get a quarterback in there or another team can't get a quarterback, somebody who can stretch the field, somebody who can make those, those deep throws? You know, I'm looking ahead to an Alabama team that could see Oklahoma in the first in the in the college football playoff semifinal. And I know Oklahoma's got its own issues on the defensive side of the ball, but what if they run into a Baker Mayfield and maybe the secondary still isn't isn't healed up yet completely, or if you have Mika Fitzpatrick dealing with a lingering issue or something like this? You know, I think Alabama showed some weaknesses on the back end. I think that this is a team that right now is, you know, obviously still a top four team and is looking um, you know, it still has its identity, so to speak. But, you know, you got some tough games coming up. you got some good quarterbacks that you're going to see. Nick Fitzgerald isn't a guy who's necessarily going to stretch the field. But at the same time, he can do some different things and provide some more versatility than Danny Etling did. So I just think it's something that's worth noting. I just don't want everybody assuming that Alabama is Alabama. And, it's you know, this is a team that's destined to run the table in the regular season and it's not going to show any signs of weaknesses the rest of the way. This is this is you know what we're looking at with an Alabama team who's been so good in years past that when we see things like this we notice it and we notice when it's not your typical Nick Saban offense and it's not ground and pound you know ripping off big chunks of yardage so I just think it's something worth noting going into um, two showdowns against ranked teams in the final three weeks of the season. So Alabama goes to start Vegas this weekend. Mississippi State, obviously a monster, monster game for the Bulldogs to prove that they belong in the West and can upset the apple cart. I believe Mississippi State is still eliminated from making it to Atlanta, but that's not necessarily the only thing that matters for an up-and-coming program like this one. What do you make of the Bulldogs' performance this past Saturday? Fairly disappointing against an awful, awful UMass team. UMass was 2-6 and six coming into this game. And you can make a case that it's the worst program at the FBS level. But you only win by 11 at home. To give Mississippi State a get-out-of-jail-free card, clearly looking ahead to the matchup against Alabama? Or were there some real problems that could be addressed and maybe this Alabama game is going to be a boat race because the dogs just aren't ready for it? Well, Kansas is really upset that you just called UMass arguably the worst FBS. Sorry, Jayhawks. Sorry, Jayhawks. Yes. Let's, let's not fight the Jayhawks. I think they've earned that title this year. Um, you're right. I, I do think that this was a little bit concerning from the, the Mississippi State front that it was such a dogfight. I mean, everybody joked about UMass because of its showing in Knoxville this season, but we expected Mississippi State, or at least I did, to run away with this one. But, you know, you could maybe chalk this, this game up as a sleeper. Um, Nick Fitzgerald did not look particularly good in the passing game. His rushing ability makes up for his shortcomings in that, of course. But, you know, you're looking at a, a Mississippi State offense that just struggles to sort of diversify itself. And that's why, you know, against really good teams, you've seen them struggle and they've seen them be shut down. So, um, you know, they were able to get things going on the ground. And, you know, th- this this really didn't turn out to be a down-to-the-wire team, so to speak. But I I'd like to say this was just this was just a sleeper game. They knew that they had Alabama coming up. You know, every SEC team has this you know this late season uh, sleeper game, so to speak, kind of built into the schedule. And for as bad as UMass was, you know, they played Mississippi State down to the wire last year. So maybe from a matchup perspective, it's a little bit better than we thought it was going to be. Um, I, if I'm a Mississippi State fan, I'm relieved that 
at least, you know, they were able to get through that, especially seeing what Coastal Carolina did against Arkansas, what Troy's done against what Troy did against LSU earlier in the season. If I'm a Mississippi State fan, I'm just hoping that this was a sleeper effort. This is a team that's played really well since the bye week and has a lot of good things going going into that Alabama game. I think a clean slate, but at the same time, you need to be more efficient in the passing game if you're going to be a team like Alabama. Now let's just refresh the memories of the people in the Hale State part of the country this past year at Alabama, of course, so much more degree of difficulty there. You lost that game 51-3, to and you had just beaten Texas A&M the week before, felt pretty good about yourself. Nick Fitzgerald was coming off back-to-back, pretty big-time games, 417 yards passing against Sanford, 209 more against Texas A&M, seven touchdown passes, and he does what he always does on the ground. But against Alabama, 16 out of 43 for 180 yards, no touchdown passes. He was intercepted. And like you said, well, don't forget about his legs. He can always equalize things with his legs and keep the chains moving and find a way to score. Well, against Alabama, 11 carries, 15 yards, 1.4 is the average on that one. No, he did not sniff the end zone. And you're right. Unless he finds a way to make some big plays in the passing game, I think this is another potential blowout. I think this is a 40-10 to 10 type of game when Alabama sort of fixes itself, unhappy with the performance this past week against LSU, and then just takes an, a Mississippi State team that can't handle them from an athlete perspective and puts on a show. That's sort of what I'm anticipating. Because Nick Fitzgerald's not going to be able to pick apart this team throwing the football. And as we've seen, he needs his legs to counterbalance that. When he's running the ball, that's when those safeties creep up and he can hit some big plays down the field with his arm. Well, that doesn't happen against Alabama. I cannot imagine the scenario when Nick Fitzgerald is going to run for 80 or 90 or 100 yards against the Crimson Tide. They're just too sound up front. There's no gaps to run through. He's not going to break the amount of tackles he usually does against the other competition he's been facing. So I just don't see it happening for this Mississippi State team. I love Dan Mullen. Nick Fitzgerald has been a better player than I anticipated, to be perfectly honest. But this is just a nightmare matchup for them. And there are some teams, I think, that can give Alabama major fits from a style perspective. I just don't think Mississippi State is one of them. I don't know what the line is on this game. I'm not a degenerate. I don't gamble. But I'd be very happy and very comfortable laying whatever the number is for Alabama. Again, it feels like about 40 to 10 to me, whether it's at Davis Wade Stadium or not. Yeah, I would agree with that. And the line, for, just for the record, is Alabama minus 14. And for a, a, a team like Mississippi State, who's been so good at home this year, I know they struggled last week, but still undefeated at home this year. And you can go back to uh, the way that they pretty much blitzkrieged LSU and they came out firing on all cylinders. For, for a team like that to be minus 14 at home is, is still saying a lot. I, I agree with you 100%. I think the matchup is is not favorable for Mississippi State. I think the things that they want to do, the balance that they want to establish, is not going to be easy against that Alabama defense. And all things considered, Nick Fitzgerald, great quarterback, but he's kind of the quarterback that Alabama sort of swallows up whole. And I, I, I do think that this could potentially be a rough go, another one of those 11 rushes for 15 yards type games. But the one thing I will say about the Mississippi State defense that could at least keep this somewhat close they got some dudes on that defensive line. You know, I've talked a lot about Jeffrey Simmons this year. I think Montez Sweat is really coming into his own right now. 
And, you know, this is a unit that's actually played pretty well. I know that they struggled against Georgia. They struggled against Auburn. But I think a lot of that was just because they couldn't do the things they wanted on offense. I think that this is a a Mississippi State defense that could actually give that that Alabama running game, uh, you know, a little bit of a check. I think that this is a a game that's not necessarily going to be a blowout from the start. I think this is one of those games in which Mississippi State's defense gets worn down and we see Alabama run away with it late. I think that they do have the athletes on defense to sort of stack up at the line of scrimmage, and I think that maybe they haven't in years past, but they've finally kind of built that identity on the defensive line. And I think Todd Grantham is going to be able to draw something up to at least keep this close in the first half. I think Stark Vegas is going to be on fire, but I think it's ultimately just going to be too much Alabama, and we're going to see the tide look like the tide down the stretch. By the way, on the other side of the coin a year ago, Jalen Hurts as a true freshman. Granted, he was a pretty entrenched by then as maybe the SEC Offensive Player of the Year. But against this Mississippi State team, he was 28 out of 37, 347 yards, four touchdowns. He was picked off once, but that was really his best performance through the air. And, oh, by the way, on the ground, he also ran it 11 times for 100 yards and scored another touchdown. So it really was an incredible dual-threat performance but now that we're on Mississippi State, let's spend another minute or two just talking about Dan Mullen in particular. His name is going to be bandied about for some of these SEC openings. Florida is already available. We assume Tennessee is going to be available. Who knows what's going on at Texas A&M and some other places. There's an opportunity for Dan Mullen maybe to quote-unquote upgrade to a bigger and better job in this conference. Do you think he's going to potentially be interested in something like that? No, I don't. I come back to the point that you made last week about he's got a good thing going in Stark Vegas. I mean, why would he want to say, and, and you know, there are obviously other motivators. If, if there are communications that have fallen apart within, you know, the athletic department, and if he doesn't have those great relationships, um, then that's a different conversation. But just looking at this on paper and saying, I can make $5 million a year to stay at Mississippi State, to um, coach a team that um, I can get to 10, 11 wins in the season, which they could potentially be looking at this year. That's not a crazy thing to think that this team can get to 10 wins. And I can also, by the way, have a six-win season or win five games in the regular season, not be on anyone's hot seat whatsoever. I've got a pretty good thing going. And I don't necessarily see the motivation to – uh, want to go to a place like Florida. Um, we're not sure what those relationships are at this point, if there's been uh, a little bit of a falling out um, since, he, you know, since he moved to Mississippi State. And we're not exactly sure if, if he's the guy that wants to be at a big program. You know, we, we talked about this last week. Coaches have to be able to play ball. They have to be able to smooth, to smooth the boosters, say all the right things at the right time, and just be on board with the entire mission that goes along with coaching at a big-time program. And I'm not 100% convinced that Dan Mullen is that guy, his personality makeup. I think that he kind of likes what he has going. I think he likes the fact that he can take a a three-star, lightly recruited quarterback and turn him into uh, a superstar, whereas at Florida, you're getting these four- and five-star kids who have, you know, these big-time expectations, and, you know, there's so much pressure on, on him to, to rebuild the quarterback situation. But I think that, you know, at Mississippi State, it's just not there. He can take a guy like Nick Fitzgerald and turn him into a stud, and he's celebrated for it. 
And I don't think anybody's ever going to necessarily push him out the door at Mississippi State. And that's refreshing, and that's rare in this day and age of coaching. So uh, the long-winded answer to your question is no, I don't think that he ultimately is the guy who's going to surface at a Florida or at a Tennessee this offseason. No, I don't think so either. I've been saying that for quite some time, and the way I keep saying it is why would he leave a low-pressure situation to go to a high-pressure situation? If you win nine or ten games in Starkfield, you were a god before he got there, this was a program that was under 500 historically. Under 500 historically. A lot of games, I'm sorry, a lot of seasons in Starkville have been three, four, and five wins. You win nine or ten there, you're a god. And you know what? If you win six or seven like he did last year, oh, well, coach, that's okay. Go get him next year. They seem to remember that they're Mississippi State, and they're lucky to have him. And he always seems to be very comfortable there. I know that coaches always say those things. You have to play the rhetoric game. But he seems genuinely comfortable where he is. This is nine years now. He could have made the leap somewhere else previously in his career. He's chosen not to. He's already getting paid close to $5 million a year. So money really shouldn't be an option. You know what I could see in a year or two? Maybe he goes and coaches the Dallas Cowboys because the ego comes in and he gets a chance to go back to Dak Prescott. Who knows? Maybe he makes that kind of leap. But going from Mississippi State to another SEC school, no, I don't see it happening. And I think he should be perfectly comfortable where he is. Dan Mullen, going to the Cowboys. You never know. Jeez, wow, okay. I'm, oh, that's on my radar now. I've never, I've never really made that connection before. I think a lot of people don't necessarily associate a guy like Dan Mullen with making the NFL jump, but hey. Greg Chiano went from Rutgers to the Tampa Bay Bucks. So. Hey, you, you heard it here first. I better trademark that. Uh, so I, let's I, let's get that down now. We're gonna we're gonna inform cold takes exposed. We're gonna get John. We're just we're gonna make sure that John Christ is is associated with that opinion. And uh, so when it happens in two years, and Jason Garrett is out in Dallas, you're gonna be able to own that opinion. I I, I kind of like that. You never know. You never know. Crazier things have happened. So uh, let's talk about this Georgia Auburn game. Another one that should be really, really fun. It's now a top 10 matchup because Auburn moved up six spots in the AP poll from 16 to 10 after disposing of Texas A&M. But before we look forward, let's look back a little bit. The South Carolina-Georgia game, it was sort of similar to Alabama-LSU where the dogs were in control, but it wasn't a blowout. South Carolina actually played pretty well in defeat. What did you see from that ball game? Well, I saw a Georgia team that it did a lot of different things that they hadn't had to do in games past, and that's throw the ball. Will Muschamp came out and said, we wanted to make Jake Fromm a quarterback in this game, and boy, did they ever. Jake Fromm was really, really good, I thought, in a situation in which um, you know Georgia was going to have to make some plays downfield to move the ball against the South Carolina defense that's actually been pretty good this year. Um, Georgia has been able to sort of impose its will in the ground game and not necessarily rely on those big passing plays, of course. But, you know, this is a game in which I think people who were doubting Jake Fromm's ability to actually play the quarterback position in the SEC and, you know, make more than the occasional nice third down throw, I think they sort of went back a little bit on that opinion because uh, Georgia's got some athletes on the outside. I mean, this is not a team that's, struggling in the passing game or is, is running the ball because it simply doesn't have a passing game. It's running the ball because it's easier and it's not exposing a freshman quarterback to potentially make mistakes. And I thought what Jake Fromm was able to do with the Georgia offense and, and show more things is only going to add to 
uh, what teams have to prepare for week in, week out against Georgia. So not necessarily a banner game. You know, this is a team that came in having beat all of its SEC opponents by at least 25 points. South Carolina hangs around. We thought that there was a possibility that the Gamecocks were going to be able to do that. And sure enough, that happened. But if you're Georgia, you know, the game was never really in doubt. And this is a, a team right now that I think showed showed some important things on offense that it's going to be able to incorporate moving forward as the schedule gets diff- more difficult down the stretch. Yeah, like I said, this Georgia-South Carolina game had a very similar feel to what later that night was Alabama and LSU. Georgia in control, but still, South Carolina, a frisky team, making some plays, only a two-touchdown spread. I thought both teams played very well. I thought this was one of the more entertaining games in the SEC all season for both teams. I mean, you can only have one winner, of course. Georgia clearly has twice the talent, but it was a good team, two good coaches, two well-coached teams, solid game plans going in, but you're absolutely right about Fromm because, yes, Georgia ran for 242 yards, but it took them 53 attempts to get there. So you're talking about four and a half yards per carry. Nick Chubb, sure, he had 102 yards, but 20 carries, and he didn't get in the end zone. Sonny Michelle, 81 yards. He did have a touchdown, but 16 carries to get, though. So the yards per carry crack, I thought South Carolina played pretty commendable defense, but Fromm picked up the difference. He was 16 out of 22, a buck 96, two scores. He was not intercepted. And some of his passes, I mean, if you're telling me that's a redshirt senior who's been in the program five years, it would have made sense to me. The touchdown catch in particular from Javon Wims was impressive. But how about that back shoulder throw for the other touchdown to Michael Hardman? I mean, that was an NFL throw. Absolutely beautiful. On point. Perfectly timed. Away from the defender. The only guy who could make a play was his receiver. And he gets six points out of it. So this is a guy who can throw the ball. The only thing we really have not seen from this Georgia team, and I said this on radio here in Tampa earlier today, is that we haven't really seen from in a comeback situation where he's down 10 or 14 points. And now he needs to throw it 35 or 40 times in a game to get his club back into it. That's the one thing we really haven't seen yet. So if Auburn wants to win this game at Jordan-Hare Stadium on Saturday, one of the more underappreciated venues in the SEC, the Tigers have to find a way to get up 10 to nothing or 13 to 3 or 17 to 7. They've got to put some pressure on Jake Fromm to be the playmaker and not have the crutch of his defense taking the ball away with three and outs and then his offense being able to run the ball so well with Michelle and Chubb and all the other great tailbacks. If we see Fromm having to throw it 40 times, I bet Auburn has a very good chance to win this game. I would agree with that. And I think this is something where if you're a team that's been as good as Georgia or Alabama, of course you don't want to be trailing in games because you show weaknesses when you're trailing in those games and you wonder why you're trailing in the first place. But you've almost been too good at this point. And the fact that you haven't had to come back and rally from a double-digit deficit Yes, that's a credit to how good your defense is and how good of starts you've been getting off to. But at some point or another, you've got to think you're going to be in that scenario, and especially against an Auburn team that still has a lot of things to play for. In my opinion, Auburn's not necessarily playing for a playoff spot anymore. I subscribe to the belief that a two-loss team can't make the field. But this is an Auburn team that can still upset Georgia, can still upset Alabama, can still go to an SEC championship and have a huge, huge season. So you know that that place is going to be rocking. And you know that Auburn has everything everything in front of it in terms of 
um, getting some national respect, and at least maybe for its own perspective, staying in the playoff picture. And I do think this is a game that Auburn's going to want to come out and just be firing on all cylinders. This could be this could end up being a game in which Jared Stidham tries to do some of the things that Drew Locke did against that Georgia defense. And, you know, what if Auburn comes out and hangs up 14 in the first couple minutes? Will they have an LSU-like finish? Or will this be a team that's able to kind of keep its foot on the gas and sort of separate itself and give that Georgia defense the test that it has not seen yet? So I think, you know, this is such an interesting matchup because we've talked a lot about Auburn and, and their, their lack of, of rising to the moment in these big games this year. But this is a, a prime opportunity to be just that at home against the Georgia team that has had its number the past couple of years here. Um, and, you know, can Georgia be put in unfamiliar territory? That's the thing to watch for on Saturday is, is Georgia going to be sort of, you know, in this unfamiliar spot, even a more different spot than it was against Notre Dame? And I think coming back against that Notre Dame defense a little bit different than it would be coming back against that Auburn defense, especially if Georgia needs to overcome maybe a 10-point deficit or something like that down the stretch. Finally, we have something to disagree on. I actually think Auburn is still alive in the college football playoff. I think Auburn's the only team in the country with two losses that can get to the Final Four, and it's simply because of the resume it will have if it finds a way to run the table. Not only does Auburn have Georgia coming to the Plains this weekend, but Week 13, we have the Iron Bowl, and Alabama is going to come to Auburn. And then, assuming that they can win both of those games, they'll win the SEC West. They'll go to the AC, I'm sorry, the SEC title game. And who are they going to play? They'll get the dogs again. So if they beat Georgia twice, if they beat Alabama in the Iron Bowl, those three victories, the power of those three victories, are going to get them into the college football playoff. The first iteration of the rankings was this past Tuesday, and Auburn was ranked 14th. With only a month or so to go, that seems like a long way. But already this past Saturday, number 13, Virginia Tech lost to Miami. Number 11, Oklahoma State lost to Oklahoma. Penn State got beat. Ohio State got beat, both in upset fashion. So process of elimination alone, Alabama's going to, I'm sorry, Auburn's going to move up four spots. And with a big victory over a Georgia on Saturday, it might move up even more than that. If the Tigers beat Georgia on Saturday, that will be the most impressive win for any team in college football. Any team. Right now, the number one victory in the country is probably Georgia at Notre Dame. And at the time, we didn't think it was a big deal because it was week two and Notre Dame was coming off a 4-8 and eight campaign. So I think the Tigers can get there because if they beat Georgia, they will have beaten the number one team in the college football playoff rankings. And if two weeks later they beat Alabama – Chances are they'll beat the number one team in the rankings for the second time in three weeks. It'll be absolutely impossible to ignore. And if we're going to talk about quality victories meaning something to the selection committee, nobody's going to have more quality victories than Auburn. Well, I disagree with that because I think you're also forgetting about the fact that Auburn lost to Clemson in non-conference play. And this is a Clemson team that, with one loss, can still win the ACC championship and will easily be in that field with the amount of quality victories that Clemson will have to get there. Clemson might not necessarily have the top five or top ten victories that an Auburn would, but it would have the head-to-head matchup, and it would have plenty of top, top 25 victories. And, you know, the way that the field is sort of breaking down, Notre Dame is still the the team that can sort of mess up the, the rest of the Power Five picture and, and potentially keep out a two-loss SEC champion 
that's as battle-tested as Auburn. So you're looking at an Auburn team that, yes, a prime opportunity to pick up not one, not two, but three more quality victories in the last month of the season. But there are so many other things to consider. Are you really going to put a two-loss Auburn team ahead of an undefeated Wisconsin team potentially? I don't think so. Are you really going to put a two-loss Auburn team ahead of a one-loss Big 12 champion? I don't think so. I think you're looking at a situation in which Auburn has a lot of nice things going, but ultimately there are still a lot of other teams at play here that would have an upper hand against Auburn if that situation were to come to fruition. Would it take away from the accomplishment that Auburn would be able to beat those three teams down the stretch? And obviously that's the only scenario in which this is even discussed. It shouldn't take away from that. But I think that the field and the committee has said in years past, and they've said year in, year out, that the the two-loss, I guess, barrier is still there. We saw that with Penn State last year. Did Penn State rack up the quality victories down the stretch that that Auburn potentially would? Not necessarily. But at the same time, you know, I, I just don't see a way in which Auburn is going to be able to leapfrog all of those teams with two losses. It limits your upside, and the committee's going to go back to that non-conference game against Clemson and say, we can't put you in ahead of the Tigers because we saw that game head-to-head. No, I, I still can't buy that. I think Auburn is going to get in if it finds a way to run the table. Now, that is a serious, serious ask. We're talking about Georgia, the number one team in the country. You have to beat them in your house. Two weeks later, you have to beat Alabama, a team that's won four national titles in the last 10 years. And at that point, presumably, would be number one in the rankings as well. And then the rematch with Georgia. No matter the sport, rematches are always difficult. But if they pull that off and get to 11-2 and as the SEC champions, I think they're in no matter what. And you're right, the committee has found a way to keep out some two-loss uh, conference chance before, but never a conference champion from the SEC has had two losses. So that is an extra variable because keeping the SEC champion out is unfathomable at this point. Right now, we're talking about Alabama and Georgia both getting in. You can't all of a sudden tell me that no one from the SEC is getting in, granted a much different scenario with a two-loss Auburn. But I think a two-loss Auburn would get in ahead of a one-loss Oklahoma that wins the Big 12 because the Big 12 simply does not have the reputation. No one thinks they play defense. No one respects the out-of-conference. Oklahoma's different. Yes, they went to the shoe and beat Ohio State this year, but they still have Big 12 stigma that's hard to get rid of. I think two-loss Auburn gets in ahead of Notre Dame. 11-1 Notre Dame running the table, very, very good resume, tough to keep out. However, what's the one loss? Georgia at home. Auburn can say, not only did we beat Georgia, we beat Georgia twice. We beat them in our house and we beat them in the neutral site. That is a very, very loud argument, difficult to ignore. But, you know, is Clemson going to get in with one loss? Probably. I think probably as surely they get the benefit of the doubt as the national champion defending and they've already got the win over Auburn. But yes, I think two loss Auburn has a chance because the wins would be incredible and their two losses are justifiable at LSU under the lights. Very difficult place to play. And then the Clemson game, the defending national champion. You don't have some egregious loss. You have a hard time explaining. So I think Auburn absolutely is alive, not only for the SEC, but for the college football playoff, the only two-loss team in America that can make any sort of convincing case. Well, the good thing is we get to see this stuff play out. And we're, we're going to get to see whether or not Auburn is up to snuff. We could be talking about a different conversation by this time next week, and we could 
potentially be discussing whether or not Gus Malzahn is potentially playing his way out of favor there uh, at Auburn because if Georgia goes into Auburn and just blows the doors off the Tigers, then we're, we're having a different discussion and we're wondering if the long-term vision of Gus Malzahn is really coming to fruition or if this is just more evidence that Auburn is still a significant notch below the SEC elite. So things can change in a hurry, um, and I think that the odds of Auburn pulling this off would be truly incredible um, if you look at what they would have to overcome. I mean, against two teams that haven't beat since Malzahn's first year, and you're asking for for three victories, I think is, is just so much. But, um, you know, for me, I, I just think the two-loss barrier is going to be too much, and especially if things play out, um, potentially with all of the current teams winning out, I think that other teams will have a better argument and the SEC will potentially be sitting there wondering what in the world happened. In that scenario, I would actually think that potentially Alabama would get in with one loss a la Ohio State last year, just like the way that Penn State was held out, even though it didn't have the head-to-head advantage. I think that the SEC wouldn't get shut out, but it would just be Alabama in instead of Auburn in. So that's, that's kind of where I would go with that, and I know a lot of people would probably disagree with that. Last comment from me this week, this is life in the SEC. If Auburn runs that gamut, gets to 11-2 and two and wins the SEC and goes to the college football playoff. He's the SEC coach of the year. Just go ahead and hand in the ballot right now. He's the SEC coach of the year. If they lose the Georgia game, if they lose the Alabama game and don't look good, either one of them, they finish 8-4 and four and go to another mediocre bowl game, he probably gets fired. That is the margin of error we have in the SEC these days. Isn't that crazy to think about? I mean, to think about what's at stake for Gus Malzahn, I hate to say that uh, an individual game is make or break for a coach because I think that's silly when you have five years of data, but that's how quickly things can turn at Auburn. And I've, I said at a couple different points this season that I think that Auburn can really go in one of two directions right now. And to this point, Gus Malzahn has been able to kind of shield off some of that doubt, but a team like Georgia or a team like Alabama teams that can expose weaknesses, much like Clemson did to Auburn in the beginning of the season when Auburn couldn't block anyone and Jared Stidham was left to fight for his life. I I do think that if those teams can sort of expose all of the frustrations that Auburn fans had during the Gus Malzahn era, and if Jared Stidham struggles in this game uh, this upcoming Saturday and then struggles in the Iron Bowl, you're looking at a, a situation in which Gus Malzahn could be out of favor at Auburn but at the same time, you're right. I mean, no coach in the country is looking at potentially coach of the year honors or getting fired like that, like Gus Melzahn right now. It's, I mean, as we often say, this is this is life in the SEC. To answer your question, no, it's not crazy. It's just the SEC. <laughs> That's Connor O'Gara. Remember to follow him on Twitter at CJ O'Gara. You can also follow me at Saturday JC. And thank you for listening to the Saturday Down South podcast. Special thanks to our friends at WDAE in Tampa, as well as our sponsors, Crystal and Ticket City. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever your favorite podcast can be found. And be sure to give the show a rating as well. My name is John Christ, and for all SEC all the time, visit SaturdayDownSouth.com.